Now, I want to just continue to review as we go through this section here the fact that it's such an important section and it has been so neglected today. And actually, it is rejected by a great many that are so-called Bible believers and they treat it, to my judgment, as bad as any liberal who rejects the inspiration of Scripture because they spiritualize it and have it mean something else. And as I go through this book, I've always appreciated it because I've always felt it was a neglected book. But I learn something new each time I go through it. In fact, I'm in a section right now that I want to say again, I do not feel competent and capable to interpret it on the high plane that it should be. I just feel that this is a section I would love to make it mean as much as we'd like to see it mean. I think that I could express what I'm thinking in the lovable language of the Pennsylvania Dutch. And they have an expression, we grow too soon old and too late smart. And I'm afraid that applies to my case in a very definite way in a section like this. Now, we have seen in this section that this chapter we are entering, which is chapter now 13 of Zechariah, that there is very definite progress being made here through a program that began with the first coming of Christ to the earth. And at that time, he was sold for just a few pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver. And at that time, he had ridden into Jerusalem, and only part of the prophecy of Zechariah was fulfilled at his first coming, which indicates the other part will be fulfilled at his second coming. But he was rejected as the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep. And then another is to come. He hasn't come yet and won't appear until this church is removed from the earth. And then that false shepherd will come. He will be accepted, and he'll lead that nation as well as the world into the great tribulation period. And the only deliverance in that time is the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And he alone can bring peace to this earth. So as we have come along in this particular program that is presented here, I would like to make some preliminary statements today because I consider this so important. It was back on December the 2nd or 3rd in 59, a Thursday evening, that a Boeing 707 took off from Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, and it headed toward the sunrise. That jet plane bore the insignia of the President of the United States. And at that time, the President was beginning the longest trip that any president had made previously. He was to visit three continents and to confer with over a dozen rulers. He'd be seen by thousands of people. Now, the supreme objective of that trip at that time 
was peace. And President Eisenhower at that time expressed it by stating that it was an effort to attain peace with justice. Now, certainly that was a laudable and worthy objective. And for 19 days, he traveled 22,370 miles. Now, since that time, every other president traveled farther, and they have tried to bring peace to this earth. Now, the longing and the prayers of over a billion people at the time that President Eisenhower made that trip were with him because the world wants peace and the human heart desires peace above all else. Now, the very interesting thing is that he went at the season of the year when we celebrate the birth of a baby in which it was said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. Well, I must confess that back there in 59, I very sincerely prayed for him, and my good wishes went with him, and a prayer for success and a bone voyage. Now, I'm sure that many of you that listen to this program have learned not to entertain delusions of grandeur that he could have or that anyone since then would be able to bring permanent peace to the earth. I actually got the impression as I listened to him on television that he didn't believe that he could actually do that. I don't think he entertained any grandiose ideas as he was a military man and faced reality. But I think he hoped to relieve the tensions and just postpone the evil day. And he wanted, I think, to make plain the purpose and intents of this nation and to try and clear up misunderstandings and misrepresentations. But may I say to you today, after all these years have gone by, that it's still true that a baby born 1,900 years ago is the only hope for permanent peace. He alone can and will bring peace to this earth. He holds in perpetuity the title Prince of Peace. This earth will not enjoy complete fulfillment until he comes. And the total purpose and entire redemption until he comes will not see peace upon this earth. And he has a program and a plan to bring in permanent peace. He will establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, it's Zechariah here, along with the other prophets, of course. But Zechariah, in great detail, sketches this program. Oh, maybe briefly, but he has a great deal of detail here. And you find that God has a program and plan for bringing in the kingdom. And in this book, as elsewhere, we find out something about the character of that kingdom. And we are going to note that as we go along. We've already seen that the kingdom has a great many physical aspects that always appeal to man. The desert will blossom as the rose. 
the lame will leap, the blind will see. And then there are those that like to think of the golden streets that'll be in the new Jerusalem. Well, that's very sentimental and emotional. But when we get off on that tangent, we forget the spiritual aspects. And we've already seen here in this little book that the kingdom will be characterized by truth. You know, he's mentioned that before, that the kingdom would be characterized by truth. Back in the 8th chapter, in verse 3, he had this to say, "...thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion." I'll dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. Well, I said when we went over that, it's not that today, but it will be when he reigns there. And that's important to see. And there's no capital of the world today that is noted for truth. I don't care what capital you attempt to go to. And then we are coming here in chapter 13, and we're going to see that the kingdom he will establish is going to be characterized by holiness and righteousness. And over in the 14th chapter, and we'll get to that later, why he's going to say that the bells on the horses and the pots and pans are going to be holiness to the Lord in that day then it's also going to be characterized by freedom from fear. And we're going to find that when we get over into the 14th chapter. Now, these are spiritual aspects of the kingdom and not the physical aspects. And we're going to find also that joy will characterize the kingdom. And what a wonderful thing that is. And that's given to us back in the 10th chapter, verse 6 and 7. I'll strengthen the house of Judah. I'll save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. They shall be as though I had not cast them out. For I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice." as through wine, yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Why, it's going to be a time of great joy, you see. And then the important thing is there's going to be peace at that particular time. It will be characterized by peace. And we are told in chapter 9, verse 10, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow, and he shall speak peace unto the nations. Now, that is the time when he comes to reign. Now, we've been following that program. He came the first time, they sold him, they rejected him, and turned him over to the Gentiles who crucified him. Then we find that there is a period of time that lapses. Zechariah's not talking about the church, but we know that this is the church period we're living in today, and that will end. And when it does, then we find there's going to appear a worthless shepherd, the Antichrist. And he won't usher in the kingdom. He'll bring in the great tribulation period. And then we find that 
His world dictatorship can only be ended by the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now, that's what we have before us here. And this, I think, should be taken in a very literal way. Now, that's the reason that I say there are many folk today think God has no future purpose with Israel. Now, you couldn't read this passage of Scripture and dismiss it unless you spiritualize it away. And if you do, you do not have a very high view of inspiration of Scripture. You just don't think God means what he says when he says it. And as we saw back in chapter 12, the center of that plan is Jerusalem. Now, in these last three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, Jerusalem occurs 21 times. Now, my friend, God wouldn't have used it that many times unless he'd have meant Jerusalem. He wasn't talking about London or Paris or Berlin or Moscow or Pekin. He was speaking actually about the city of Jerusalem. And it's quite interesting that even President Eisenhower back in that day bypassed Jerusalem, and they've been bypassing it ever since until the Arabs turned off the oil. Then Jerusalem somehow or another became rather prominent again. In fact, the matter is, it had world attention for a while. So we take this literally. And I think your better conservative expositors today take that position. I have this quotation from Dr. Unger, whom I value very highly as an interpreter of this book. He has the finest book on Zechariah that I know anything about. Now, it's a scholarly book, and you do need a little smattering of Hebrew to get through it, but it's a wonderful book. I'm quoting from him now. Only a literal application of these prophecies to the restoration and conversion of the Jewish nation at the second advent of Christ can satisfy the scope of these prophetic disclosures. Other interpretations ignore the true scope of Zechariah's prophecies as a whole, violate the immediate context, resort to pointless mysticalizing, and end up in a morass of uncertainty and confusion. And I say amen to that, and I could even make it stronger than that, because I believe that it's practically a denial of the inspiration of the Word of God. Now, this first verse says here, "...in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David." Now, it's in that day, and we've already determined that in that day refers to the period beginning with the Great Tribulation. It moves on into the millennial kingdom, and in between there is the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. But this verse here does not refer to the first coming of Christ, because at that time there was not open to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Not at all. Actually, They rejected him, and they crucified him. And even Paul could write in his day in Romans 10, 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness 
they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, so that at the first coming they have rejected him. And this fountain will be opened at the second coming. And we saw back in chapter 12, and by the way, chapter 12 and 13 just go together because the program is presented here. And we saw in chapter 12 that it would be in that day that God would pour out his Spirit upon these people. Joel talked about that. And that's when these people are going to have the fountain open to them. And that, of course, will be the fact that he was crucified for them. And they are going to look upon him, and he puts it very definitely, they shall look upon me. And this is, remember, the word of the Lord, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. And as we said That's going to be a real day of atonement for these people when Christ comes, and they're going to be greatly moved. The Spirit of God will take that veil from their eyes. And Paul makes it clear that the veil can be taken away from their eyes and from our eyes if we really want to give up sin. You see, the problem with man's heart trouble, not head trouble. No man has really an intellectual problem. He hasn't got that many brains. No man has to deal with the creator of this universe, with an infinite God. The problem is you just don't want to give up your sin. That's true of these people. That's true of the Gentiles. That's true of the world today. Let's face up to it. Now he says here, it shall come to pass in that day. And he's getting rather monotonous in using that expression, by the way. He uses that expression about as much as I use, by the way. All right, by the way, let's look at this. Saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. Now, when they returned from Babylonian captivity, they had taken the gold cure down in Babylon and came back and gave up idolatry as they had observed it before. But... You see, there was these little household teraphim that they were using, and there were all kinds of little gadgets and fetishes that they were using. Even to this day, a great many so-called civilized people think if they wear a certain thing, it'll ward off danger, or if they put up a certain little gadget somewhere, why, it will ward off this, that, and the other thing. That was the kind of idolatry they were engaged in. And they shall no more be remembered, and also I will cause the prophets, now those were the false prophets, and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. Now that has reference, of course, to the coming of Christ, and it means that the demons are going to be removed at that time. And you and I live in a world where they have been very active. We have a tension call to it today, and it may be that we're seeing an outbreak today as we draw near the end of the age. But very candidly, I think there's been a manifestation of them all along, and they do it in a very subtle manner. But the reason this passage is so important, this is the only passage that speaks of the demons being put out of this earth during the millennium. And now in Revelation, we're told that the prophet and the false prophet and the Antichrist, 
the one who is the willful king, and also the devil are going to be removed. But very frankly, nothing is said there about the demon. Well, here's where it is, right here. And it stands to reason they would be removed also at that particular time. Now, he intends to remove the idols. And I'd like to read in this connection a verse of Scripture that's found over in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And I'd like to just read there verse 20. We're told, "...and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone." Now, apparently, the demons at that time, the unclean spirit that's mentioned here, I think the unclean spirit actually refers to all demons all over the world, not just in that particular land. But this will be a final casting out of them, and they are put out forever. And it's logical to believe at that time, as the book of Revelation says, the devil is put in the bottomless pit for that period, and then We have here the false prophet and the beast, that is, Antichrist. They're put in the lake of fire. Well, I would assume that these demons are put one place or the other. At least we're told they are removed from the earth at this particular time. And I would say it's a tremendous step. Idolatry and false prophecy together with their demonic dynamic, and that is... Here, the unclean spirit are the demonic dynamic that's given. And I think we're seeing a special manifestation of that at our particular time in history. And he will remove these at that time. And I think it has reference to the fetishes that they were putting up. The golden calves were not put back at Bethel and in Samaria. Actually, that type of idolatry apparently had not returned. But certainly, these little household images were something, and they dealt with the zodiac also, by the way. We're seeing today a return to that type of thing. You would think that we've come out of paganism and heathenism, that the world would not go back to it. But the world's going back to it because we are gradually moving into the darkness again because of a lack of knowledge of the Word of God. And that is the picture that is given to us here. And that is the explanation of why we see that demonic dynamic being manifested in our day. And that is the thing that really gives energy to the occult. There's no energy shortage in that particular connection at all. And this is the total and complete extermination of idolatry and also of the putting out of the demons. And I would say that it covers really the entire earth. Now, we are told here in verse 4, and I want to move down to that, "...and it shall come 
to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. Now, the thing that interests me here is there are two things, really. The fact that the prophets actually, when the Lord comes, they'd be ashamed to attempt to prophesy at that particular time. This false vision, they actually now are really confused since the Lord Jesus has come and made a liar out of every one of them. Now, the second thing that you note here is this mantle that they wear. It's called here a rough garment to deceive. And the prophets use that in Israel. It's generally a hairy garment. It was the kind of a garment, actually, that you find mentioned several times in Scripture. Esau was a hairy individual, and he resembled that type of a person. It looked as if he had on a hairy garment or one of these hairy things. And actually, Elijah wore such a mantle himself. And you remember, that was the mantle that fell upon Elisha. So that what we have here is not something that's introduced that's brand new, but something that we know something about. Now, he mentions that here, and that these are going to be removed. Why? Whether there be prophecy, it shall fail. It'll be fulfilled. And the false prophets will be made liars. Theirs will not be fulfilled. Now, I read here, verse 5, "...but he shall say, I'm no prophet. I'm a farmer, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth." In other words, the office of prophet will go out of business. The man that were false prophets are going to have to go back and become farmers again. That's where, you remember, Amos was, and he returned back to it after his prophesying was over. And so, in that day, that is the thing that will take place. Now, when we come here to verse 6, in fact, this is the thing that the critic has tried to get out of the text to begin with. They said it's shocking to find this prophecy given at this time. And it is. And that's the amazing thing and the wonder of it. And it's no excuse to reject it. It's to alert us. Listen to this. I'm reading verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, that again, may I say, is a very wonderful verse of Scripture. I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, that's been translated by some of the higher critics, wounded in the house of those who love me. Well, they didn't love him the first time. They hated him. And he made the statement, they hate me without a cause. Well, he's coming to his friends. He came unto his own. And his own received him not, but to as many as received him. He gave at that time the authority to become sons of God. Well, when the Spirit is poured out, they are going to receive him when he comes the second time. That is, the remnant will receive him. And they will 
wonder. They say, well, where did you get those wounds in your hand? He said, well, I was wounded here before. I came before. Came the first time. Now, he has called in a song, The Stranger Galilee. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't like that song. He's not the stranger of Galilee to those who know him. And even when he comes to his own people a second time, he'll not be the stranger of Galilee. Now, the first time he came, he was the stranger of Galilee to his own people, but not to those who know him. And that's the reason I don't think Christians should sing that song, Stranger Galilee. Why, to know him is life eternal. And Paul says, my ambition at the end of his life, he says, that I might know him, power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings. Now, when he came the first time, they didn't know him. And this matter of mistaken identity, that's been the source of plots for writers of both comedy and tragedy down through the years. Shakespeare in the comedy of Arabs. Dickens in the tale of two cities. That's the plot. Many dramatic productions are based on this idea. The Count of Monte Cristo, for instance, becomes even more tragic, though, when it's in real life. And it's a real-life story. I read of a mother who had not seen her daughter for 17 years. She went to meet her in New York and walked right past her. It took some time for them to meet again because the mother didn't recognize her own daughter. And when I held meetings quite a few years ago up in Reedley, California, I met a mother who had come from Russia. She had not seen her daughter since she was a baby, or she wouldn't have known that daughter at all. I think the greatest tragedy of the ages are expressed in actually just 11 words. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What a picture. And you remember John the Baptist elaborated upon that. And this is John 1:26. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. And the Lord Jesus said, Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. What a tremendous statement that was. And then Paul in Second Corinthians, the third chapter, verses 14 and 15, he wrote, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth. Notice that. The veil is untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. You notice it's upon their heart. But Paul says, when it's removed, what? When the heart gets right, you can turn to him. He's a stranger only to those who don't know him as Savior. Now, Zechariah, therefore, speaks of that here. And so, in this first coming... They didn't know him. But there was redemption is the high word of his first coming, and revelation is the high word of his second coming. It was reconciliation at his first coming, recognition at his second coming. It was the incarnation at his first coming. It will be identification at his second coming. It was the mystery at his first coming. 
It'll be manifestation at his second coming. And in his first coming, it was propitiation. And in his second coming, it will be proclamation. What a picture that we have here of this. And no wonder one shall say unto him, and I think just as Peter spoke for the other apostles and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? How did this come about? He'll answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friend. I came unto my own. The woman of Samaria said, How is it thou being a Jew? And you remember he told his apostles, Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And a remnant at that time accepted him and received him. But it's only a remnant. And it'll be a remnant at his second coming, to tell the truth. I think a much larger remnant, but it will be a remnant because at that time the Spirit of God is to be poured out, which up to the present that has not happened. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost on just about 120, and it was a feast day in Jerusalem, and there were a whole lot of people there, friends. Now... Let me read the seventh verse. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man who's my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. He refers back to the time when he was smitten. In fact, when he was here. The Lord Jesus quoted this verse. We'll turn to that in just a moment. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture and, of course, we immediately identify it back in chapter 12 with verse 10. They shall look upon me whom they pierced, and they shall mourn for it. Now, I read in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man who's my fellow. Don't tell me that both Old and New Testament doesn't teach the deity of Christ. My fellow, he's the one that is even with me. Now, he says, saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now, who would have thought that that referred to the Lord Jesus Christ? But it does refer to him, because when you go to Matthew, the 26th chapter, verse 31. Now, turn there and read that. Then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it's written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Now, he made that applicable to himself. So what the Lord Jesus is saying here, and those of you now who deny that God has a future purpose with Israel, then may I say that in this series of prophecies that we have here that relate to his first and second comings, did the Lord Jesus Christ lie or didn't he? He says that Zechariah was referring to him when he said, Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And when he comes the second time, they say, What is the meaning of these nail prints? The wounds in your hand. Why, well, he said, I received those in the house of my friend. And then the prophecy goes on, because then they're going to 
know him. And as we said back in chapter 12, that'll be the time of the greatest day of atonement. Verse 8, will you listen? It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts in it shall be cut off and die. The third part shall be left in it. And I take that's the remnant. A third will be saved. Verse 9, And I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. They shall call on my name. I'll hear them. And I will say, It's my people. And they shall say, Lord's my God. Isn't that a wonderful statement? And that's the reason that 144,000 are sealed at the time of the Great Tribulation period. These are the ones that are going to say at that time, I will take a stand for him. They're the ones that are going to be faithful to him. They're the ones that are going to go through the great tribulation. Why? He sealed them, by the way. They'll make it, and they're his. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. And you want to know something? I'm going to make it, and you're going to make it if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. Now, friends, we've come to the last chapter, and this chapter actually continues, and it concludes this second division here at the end. We've had the last section in the outline divided into prophetic burdens, beginning with chapters 9 through 14, and then there were the prophetic aspects of the first burden that were connected with the first coming of Christ, and in this last section... And that began with chapter 12 through 14. We have here the prophetic aspects connected with the second coming of Christ. Now, this last chapter, actually, it just gathers together everything and ties any loose strings there might be. I've labeled this chapter features and facts connected with the coming of Christ to the earth. You see, the very interesting thing is that we've had a very definite program given to us in Zechariah, and that's been true in all three major divisions. When we had the ten visions, then we had that historic interlude, and now this last major division of prophetic burdens, we always start where Israel was at that particular time and in a certain amount of difficulty. And it moves through to the national conversion of Israel, when the nation will turn to God. There's a pouring out of the Spirit of God. And that prepares the scene for the return of the Messiah, because at that time they've entered the great tribulation period. Now, this last chapter is a great climactic chapter, but it also follows the entire program that's been given to us in Zechariah. And for that reason, this is a section that leads up to and into the establishment of the kingdom at the second coming of Christ. Now, we've had that in each one of these major divisions. In other words, Zechariah, encouraging the people at that day, looks on to the future and he outlines a program. And therefore, in chapter 14, there's certain things we need to say about it, that it is wholly prophetic. It's entirely that. 
And then the other thing is that it has no prophecy for the present day or this present age in which we're living. It is speaking of the end of the age that ushers in the kingdom. And you will find that many of the commentators, especially the higher critical school, and today I think that largely all amillennialists follow the same plan and purpose, that this does not actually speak of prophecy and then that it's not literal and that it can be fitted into the present age. And believe me, that leads to some strange interpretation. Lowe and DeVette, who were a couple of the liberal boys, they belong to that camp. They both say that this chapter defies all historical explanation. And believe me, you can say amen to that. Therefore, this chapter is entirely prophetic. That is, it's prophetic from where we are today and looks to the future. And the only interpretation that will satisfy is a literal interpretation. That's the only one that will give the meaning. And any interpretation must be in harmony with the context here. As I've said all along, that in interpreting prophecy or interpreting Scripture anywhere, you cannot disregard the context before and after. And then also you have to interpret this in keeping with the spirit and the feel of the entire Word of God. You just can't reach in here and come out with some wild interpretation that has no basis in fact. And I think that very frankly, that this is a very, very important passage of Scripture because it does one thing. It demonstrates the difference between literal interpretation and this idea of spiritualizing it and mysticalizing it as many do and make it mean practically nothing at all. This is not an incomprehensible or obscure connotation making them merely something that is allegorical or something that is mythical or something that actually can be dissipated into thin air. They attempt to explain it away rather than to explain it. And by the way, let me make a suggestion. And I feel a little mean today, and this is a suggestion that is really a mean suggestion. Now, if you really want to know the position that a pastor that you're not sure about either on radio or in the town or the city where you live. You really want to know what he believes. Take the 14th chapter of Zechariah to him. Ask him to explain it to you. You'll find out when you get there what the boy really believes when he takes the 14th chapter of Zechariah. Now, may I say to you, isn't that mean to say a thing like that? This is the reason that certain of the commentators that have been liberal, great scholars of the past, actually. Hengstenberg, for instance, he refers the chapter 14 to all of the Messianic era. 
Well, what he really means, he refers it to this church period today. And you can't, by the wildest kind of interpretation, fit it in. And that's the reason he doesn't go into detail. And Lupole, another outstanding liberal scholar, says, Our verses do not therefore apply to any one situation. They do not describe a siege, capture, and captivity which actually occurred. By means of a figure, they describe a situation which obtains continually through New Testament times. God's people shall continually be antagonized and suffer bitter adversity at the hands of their foes and shall in consequence be brought low. But there shall always be an imperishable remnant, and that not so extremely small. Would you tell me what he really means by that? What he really means is he doesn't know what to do with this chapter at all. So the thing you do is you spiritualize it, and you spread it out like butter on toast, and it'll melt just about the same way. Now, may I say that these verses are not just figurative, and they do not apply to New Testament times. And the remnant that is spoken of here, it's been made clear to us in this book, it's a Jewish remnant that he's talking about, and that this is entirely eschatological, something that we need to recognize. Now, there have been other scholars that have just called it Jewish Kiliism. Well, the fact of the matter is, as Dr. Unger says, Jewish Kiliism was wrong only in the fact that it overlooked the prophesied rejection and death of the Messiah as the indispensable prelude to his manifestation in kingdom glory. All right, now with that as more or less of a background, let's come to the text that we have here and look at it today. We have verse 1 now, and will you note this? Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Now, actually, this is a headline. This would make a good headline in the paper. And you notice many times that a headline is written over an article that when you get down in the article, you move back of the headline, and they give you the preliminary that leads up to it. Now, that's what you have here. But you'll notice what he says, Behold the day of the Lord. And here we are again with that very impressive statement. But we're going to find that in these first three verses here that we have the last siege of Jerusalem. That is the thing that will be before us. And then we have in the next four verses, four through seven, you have the personal advent of the Messiah. Now, all of this has been before us in this book, in other chapters. But now we have it from a little different angle. For instance, the great tribulation period and the siege of Jerusalem. Why, actually, that's been before us. But the thing that was important in the other passages was an emphasis on the latter part of it and the deliverance that came. And Zechariah was giving it to the people for their encouragement. But here you see how tragic, actually, it's going to be during that period of the day of the Lord, that it begins in darkness. That is the thing Joel had said. The day of the Lord is not light, it's darkness. 
it begins in darkness and the hopelessness and helplessness of these people in that period, it's difficult for us to understand. And so the day of the Lord here is headline material. And by now, we ought to know something about it. Well, the Hebrew idiom that is employed here is Yom Ba Le Yahweh. I just pass that on to you just to let you know I did study Hebrew, although I've forgotten all of it by now. But anyway, that is the expression that is the headline material here. And it refers to this coming day that's yet in the future when the church is removed and Antichrist brings on the great tribulation. The world will believe that he's bringing in the millennium. And we've certainly had quite a few presidents in my day. Never one of them was going to bring in the millennium. And you want to know something? Not one of them got in four miles of the millennium. But it doesn't keep us from believing that the next candidate's going to do it. Well, none of them are going to do it. As we said last time, only Jesus Christ can do that. And what he's saying here is this. Lo, a day is coming. It's the Lord's. When thy spoil shall be distributed in the midst of thee. And it means the enemy is going to take Jerusalem again. This is the last siege. And he says here, and let me read this, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, this is the last siege, and it's not a pretty picture that's given to us here. The enemy takes the city, and when it says all nations, I'm of the opinion that each nation will have representatives there. You say, well, how could that be? Well, what do you have today in the United Nations? You have that same thing, and over in that land, at the time I'm making this take, the United Nations is there again. And the soldiers come from different nations that are in the United Nations. And they serve more or less as a buffer between Israel and the enemy. Now, it'll be different in that day, but it's an army that's made up of those that represent all the nations, and they're coming against Jerusalem, and they're going to take Jerusalem. And we are told here, and let me give this verse here. It's a sad state. It says, "...and the city shall be captured." The houses will be plundered, and the women raped, and half of the city shall go into captivity, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Apparently, they will be able to escape. Now, there are those that believe, and that includes myself, that probably it'll be the rock-hewn city of Petra where they'll go to. But Masada would be a good place where they went before, at the time of Titus, the only thing is, it sure would be a good target for bombers if they went to Masada. So the rock-hewn city of Petra could be it. But I don't think that we can be dogmatic about a great many of these things that the Scripture's not clear on. Let's be dogmatic about what the Word of God has to say. 
Now, this is a sad thing that is revealed to the city is taken, and the houses are plundered, and the women raped. Those are the three things that he mentions here. Now we are told, verse 3, "...then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle." Now, this is a picture, actually, of the deliverer who's coming. It's at this time that their help will not come from the north or the south, the east or the west, but the help will come from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and that will be none other than the Lord Jesus himself coming to the earth to deliver these people. Now we have in verse 4, "...and his feet shall stand..." in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst toward the east, toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Well, this is a tremendous statement that's made here, and it's quite literal. The Mount of Olives is literal. Jerusalem is literal. Those people are literal. And the thing that takes place here is tremendous. When the Lord Jesus comes, his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. And I think that that's quite literal. He's the glorified Christ today. He has nail prints, spike prints in those feet. But those feet left the Mount of Olives when he left here. And he's coming back. And you remember, that's exactly what he told his disciples, he said when he ascended, that the two witnesses came and they said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus that has gone into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And this is the fulfillment of it that will take place in the future. And when? In the day of the Lord. In the time when they are in great trouble and Jerusalem has been besieged and taken, and it'll be the last time. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Now, that's not a casual statement. You'll notice through Scripture that help for them is coming from the east. And that's the reason they put such great attention to that eastern gate, which some call the Golden Gate. I personally think the reference to the golden gate is the gate in the temple that shall be built. But actually, if you want to call it that, fine. It's the eastern gate and that he'll probably come in from the east. Ezekiel tells us that. The help is coming to them from the east. And I think that's interesting. We've been on the side of Israel from the very beginning. They become a nation. But we happen to be a western nation, you see. The real help is coming from the Lord. And there's no fulfillment of prophecy there today. You see, and you put this prophecy down on what's going to happen, because the thing that's going to take place is that there'll be a great earthquake, and that mountain will be split right down the middle, and half of it will go to the north and half to the south. And apparently, a city that has been an inland city will suddenly become a seagoing city, that is, a port town. And the waters that will come forth will flow both to the Mediterranean, as we're going to see, and also to the Dead Sea. And both of those areas could use a little extra water 
these days. And apparently, all of this change of topography is to elevate Jerusalem so that it will stand out in a valley. Now, very much like Mount Rainier stands out up here in the state of Washington. But Jerusalem in that day will. Now, today it does not stand out like that. There are many of the mountains around Jerusalem that are higher than Jerusalem is. And then he begins to go back and show how it came into view, the steps that were taken. First, Jerusalem was besieged, and there came enemies from every direction, and there was no help except from the Lord. And he's talking about that the Lord Jesus will come to deliver them, and when he comes to deliver them, his feet shall touch the Mount of Olives. And I think if you just let Zacharias say what he wants to say in this chapter, not trying to make him say something that fits into some so-called spiritual interpretation, that is, spiritualizing the Word of God. Just let him say it. When he says his feet, he's talking about his feet, not his hands. And he says they'll touch the Mount of Olives. And apparently he means that's where the touchdown is going to be. And I'm of the opinion that if man can send a missile that goes out to the moon and spends a few days there and then comes back, and they can put a battleship out in the Pacific and have that little capsule come down in two or three miles of the battleship, I'm of the opinion that God's not going to have any trouble, friends, in the Lord Jesus Christ touching down at the Mount of Olives. And I believe that's where he touches down on this earth. This is the thing that we saw when he left. He left from the Mount of Olives. He's going to pick up right where he left off. When he took off, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. But great physical changes are going to take place that are mentioned to us here. A great earthquake would rend the Mount of Olives in two. One half would move toward the north, one half to the south. And that there would be a very great valley. Now, pay attention to that as we move on into this section that describes that for this reason. Jerusalem today is surrounded by the roughest terrain that I know of anywhere. I've, frankly, been no place that would compare to it. It's rugged. You go north, you go east, you go south, you go west, any direction you go. You can go south to Bethlehem and you think you're in Disneyland and you're taking one of these toboggan rides. Up and down you go mountain after mountain, and rugged. And you go north, oh, it is rugged. You go east, it is rugged. Big boulders, rocks. You've never seen so many great big rocks. And then going down to Jericho, going east. Now that, my friend, is a rugged trip. Only thing is that the United States put in a wonderful Macadam Highway in there, it's not a freeway, but it's a good highway, and it makes the trip today for the tourists, and the tourist doesn't realize, actually, what rough terrain that is. Now, we are told in verse 5, "...ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains." And this is the reason that many believe it'll be 
over yonder in the rock-hewn city of Petra. That's in the old country of Edom. But I'm not sure that we're told that. And then we are told, For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Now, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture here. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus coming back to the earth. You have this in the 19th of Revelation. And there again, the armies of heaven shall follow him. And here we're told all the saints will come with him. Well, let me turn over and just read a verse of Scripture here. It's over in the 11th chapter of Romans, verse 25 and 26. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, that ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, you see, this is the time of the fullness of Gentiles, when they all come up, the nations, against Jerusalem. Now we read verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it's written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now that time definitely has not come. And his first coming doesn't satisfy it. And their present return to the land certainly doesn't satisfy any of these scriptures. Now we read verse 6. It shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. We're moving through that period of dawn to the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. Verse 7. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening tide it shall be light. This, of course, I think is a definite reference to the day of the Lord, which is not actually a 24-hour day. Verse 8, It shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and that is the Dead Sea, and half of them toward the Hinder Sea, that's Mediterranean Sea, in summer and winter shall it be. In other words, this will be a spring that will gush up of water. Now, I think it's literal water here. If you want to find in this a suggestion of the spiritual water of life, that I think will be true too, because the law will go out from Jerusalem, the Word of God from Jerusalem in that day. But this is literal water we're talking about. Now, we come to a new section here, and this is quite a wonderful section. Here is the establishment now of Israel's kingdom here upon the earth. Now, will you notice? And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. This, again, is another one of these very marvelous passages of Scripture that we have, and it refers to the day of the Lord, and it refers to the fact that the Lord will be king. And that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. 
Now, I'd like to turn over to Zephaniah and read the third chapter there, verse 9. He says, "...for then will I turn to the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent." And as we said before, I don't think we can be definite about that language. Language was given as a barrier to mankind. God put that up as a barrier. There was no wall that could be built any higher than the wall of a language barrier. And that was the way that he was enabled to scatter mankind and then down through the years to prepare for the coming of a Savior. And today, this gospel is going back into those languages throughout the world. And I think that's one of the great signs we're moving toward the end of the age. Now, back again to something else that's quite wonderful. There'll be one language in that day, and I will be glad of that, and I don't care what language it is. Everybody, I think, will speak that same language. One language, one Lord. Verse 10, "...all the land shall be turned like the Araba from Geba to Rimon south." Now, let's look at this for just a moment, because this is, I think, very important as we're looking here at what really is the finale. It brings us to the end. Now, from Geba to Rimon is quite interesting. Actually, what we have here, the Arabah is a geographical name of that deep rift that comes down from above the Sea of Galilee, through the Jordan Valley, through the Dead Sea, down into the Gulf of Aqaba, and on into North Africa, for that matter. It's been called the Great Rift. We spoke of it the other day. It begins at the Dog River at the coast north of Beirut in Lebanon. Well, he's talking about here's going to be another great valley that's going to resemble that. And he says that it will go all the way from Geba to Rimon. Now, we have here Geba to Rimon, and that indicates the hill country of the ancient tribe of Judah to the border of Simeon on the south. And he goes all the way up north because Geba is in the tribe of Benjamin up there. Now, Rimon is 33 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So that you have here a tremendous valley and all of that rugged terrain that is around Jerusalem that we talked about last time is going to be smoothed out and Jerusalem will be elevated, apparently. We read here from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up. In other words, Jerusalem shall be elevated and inhabited in its place from Benjamin's gate under the place of the first gate, under the corner gate, from the tower of Hananiel, under the king's wine presses. And one commentator years ago said this couldn't be literal because nobody could find the tower of Hananiel. The interesting thing is archaeologists have now located it. And this brother is going to have to come up with another interpretation. Verse 11, "...and men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem..." shall be safely inhabited. Now, this will be the first time in the history of this city that it's going to be a safe place to live. It's not today. never has been. It's a 
very tender spot. It's the most sensitive spot on this universe is there. Now, the millennium has come. The Lord Jesus has come. His feet touched the Mount of Olives. These tremendous physical changes have taken place. Now, they can dwell in Jerusalem safely. In other words, peace has come to the earth for the first time. Verse 12, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will smite all the peoples that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. That's a living death that will take place. And when we get the book of Revelation, you'll see that takes place in the great tribulation period. And their eyes shall consume away in their sockets, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. It's a terrible thing. Verse 13, It shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. In other words, the thing that will bring this in, that is, make it possible for the enemy to take the city, is largely due to the fact that there is this tremendous revolution that apparently has taken place in the city. Now, verse 14, "...and Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the nations round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel, in great abundance." And we are told elsewhere in prophecy that as they brought out of Egypt great wealth, they will when they return to that land. That is, when God returns them. Verse 15, "...and so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, the camel, and of the ass, and all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague." Now we come to the kingdom in contrast to the setting up of it, because the coming of Christ to the earth, he puts down all unrighteousness, all rebellion. Now let me read... Verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone that's left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up, that is, face in, from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'll not turn to it, but you have this same thing in Isaiah, the 66th chapter, verse 19. You see... No prophecies of any private interpretation. It has to fit into the program or it's no good at all. And it means that after the rebellion is put down inside and the nations that are in rebellion against God, there'll be many individuals in these nations. In other words, there's not only going to be a remnant of Israel saved, but a remnant out of each nation of the Gentiles. And that will be the ones that enter in. Now, they're going to face in to Jerusalem. Now, again, there are great changes taking place, not only physically, not only spiritually and economically, and in fact, in every area of life, but the manner of witnessing for God will be different in the millennium. You see, we were told, beginning at Jerusalem, to go to the ends of the earth. Here, they had to go up to Jerusalem. That's what they did before the Lord Jesus came and died on the cross. Then he said, now go to the ends of the earth with this message. 
Now, will you notice that they're going up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That is the feast that they celebrated when they came out of Egypt. Now they celebrate it because they've been brought from the ends of the earth back to Jerusalem. Verse 17, "...it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain." Somebody said, I thought this was the millennium. It is. But the millennium is a time of testing of those that have turned to God, this great multitude, a remnant, but a large remnant, I think. But it's like church members. Not all church members are Christians by any means. And this period of the millennium will be a time of testing. Now we're told, and if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague with which the Lord will smite the nations and come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Egypt was used as an example. Now notice, in that day, and Zechariah won't let loose of that expression, in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. Even a harness on horses will be holiness unto the Lord. What does that mean? Everything for the service of God. Those vessels in the tabernacle that were called holy vessels. Why? Well, they weren't unusual. I have a notion they were beaten and battered after 40 years in the wilderness, and they looked like they'd really had it. But they were holy. Why? They were for the service of God. And everything in that day will be for the service of God a harness on the horses, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Everything for the service of God then. Today we're living in a world when practically nothing is for the service of God. Verse 21, Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. Just think of that, that skillet that you've got, that pot for cooking beans or cabbage. All that'll be in that day will be for the service of God, everything dedicated to him. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them. Somebody says they're going to have sacrifice. Remember what we had in Ezekiel? Certainly it will look back to the death of Christ as the sacrifices before Christ look forward to his coming. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and boil in them. And in that day there shall be no more a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. That means all the hypocrites are going to be removed. That means every unbeliever will be removed, and there'll be none in the service of God unless they belong to him. That's going to be the millennium, friends. What a glorious picture this is. This is a great finale and a climax for the prophecy of Zechariah. Until then, May God richly bless you.